So turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 2, as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today in our study. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that as we do every week, that You would guide us in Your Word, that You would lead us to it like a shepherd leads his sheep to green pastures and still waters that our hearts and our minds would be stilled by your word, that we would find peace and comfort, but that we would also find conviction of our sin because our hearts and our minds are so wayward even now as we live in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you do, that you treat us as you do always, with gentleness, with mercy. Lead us to your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Since I read through this passage, it kind of made me think of you know, what Israel could have been had they not continued in the, the way of sin. And it made me think of baseball players who kind of have followed that same way. The baseball is getting ready to start, and so finally we have real sports that are about to be played as opposed to all these other weird things that have gone on for the last several months. Uh, it, made, it made me think of one particular baseball career uh, by the name of Brian Taylor. There are only three players in Major League Baseball history to be drafted number one overall and to never play a game in the, on the Major League level. And he is one of those players, Brian Taylor. He's from the early 90s. As a high school player, he could throw 99 miles per hour. That's fast. Uh, Scott Boros, who is the a famous sports agent, um, he said that to this day he's the best high school baseball player he's ever seen. Taylor was drafted and received a $1.5 million signing bonus from the Yankees. That was bigger money back then. It's still big money today. They kept him in the minors to help him work on his form, to help him be a better major league pitcher. And it was during this time he made one of the worst mistakes of his entire life. His brother got into a bar fight one evening. All bad stories begin that way. And rather than contact the authorities and uh, or just kind of shake it off and get over it, Brian went to the house of the assailant and attempted to offer his own brand of judgment to this person. Well, he could pitch very well, but apparently he couldn't fight. He uh, attempted to throw a haymaker at this guy and instead threw his shoulder out of socket, the one that he pitches with, tearing his labrum. Uh, the guy who invented the Tommy John surgery, Frank Job, said that it was the worst injury he had ever seen. Um, so you don't recover from that. And you guessed it, Taylor was never the same. He lost more than 10 miles per hour on his fastball. He couldn't throw a curveball for a strike. Therefore, you can't pitch in the major leagues. He eventually made his way back to his hometown where he was arrested for things like child abuse and cocaine possession, spent several years in prison. He could have played beside names like Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera because that's when they played. They came up around the same time, but instead he'll only be remembered as a might-have-been. 
The nation of Israel had a lot of similarities to Mr. Brian Taylor, as they were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. Said all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, again in Genesis 22, which we'll look in a second. They were supposed to be a beacon of light in a wilderness of pagan gods. But instead, they just looked like any other pagan nation, serving their own interests, seeking after every god but the only one true god. Today's text is a picture of what is in store for Israel in the future, the good things. But it easily causes us to think what might have been. I think it's important for us as well today because it might be easy for us as believers in Christ to fall into that same trap. We are poised to be a blessing to the community, to each other, but we could easily throw it all away if we're not careful. The enticement of sin is strong because it always causes us to wonder what we might be missing out on. And so as we look at this text, I want to look at it in two main ideas, the promise of future blessing and then the reality of present difficulties. So with that, let's look together at the text. Stand with me as we read from God's Word. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, said concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So turn with me to kind of give some background for our text. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is where we're going to find one of these promises that was given to Abraham, but really concerning the entire nation of Israel. So just to kind of sum up where we're at, remember the story, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are really old at this point in the story, 99 and 90, I believe, were their ages. Abraham was asked to take his only son. Well, he had Ishmael, but that's a whole other story. Now his Isaac, who was the promised son, that God was going to send him a son. His children were going to be as many as the sands on the seashore. Now he's told to take this son Isaac, through whom all this is going to happen. And he's told to take him to Moriah, to to one of the mountains, and sacrifice him. Doesn't quite line up with the promise that God said, your people will be as many as the sands are on the seashore, if he's planning to kill the only son whom this is going to happen through. They weren't going to get another chance. Sarah and Abraham weren't. So what did Abraham do? He obeyed. 
he bound his son and tied him to an altar and had risen the knife to kill him when the Lord provided a substitute instead, just like the substitute that was provided for the people of God from the foundations of the earth. Here, God does the same for Abraham. And so look with me at Genesis 22, starting at verse 15. This is the Lord speaking now to Abraham. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because you have obeyed my voice, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, this is, again, just a reiteration of what was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Remember when God came to Abraham and Abraham was worshiping other gods at the time. And God came to Abraham and said, go to the place that I will show you and you will have a people. And those people will be a blessing to all the nations. You will be my people. I will be your God. The people of the world were going to be blessed through you, Abraham. God had plans for Israel, but ultimately those plans would have to come through the only one true Israelite who ultimately was an offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and others, Jesus Christ. He was the blessing to the nations because the people could not, would not obey. And that brings us to our text today in Isaiah chapter 2, the promise of future blessings. First, we have a very similar beginning as the beginning of the book there in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There's a lot made of this chapter 2, verse 1 in the commentaries, but to summarize, it's still Isaiah serving as a prophet, still the mouthpiece of God. He's got a lot more to say to Judah and really all of Israel. And so this is where he does. In verse 2, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. The latter days. This idea of the latter days is very prevalent throughout all the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament prophecies, if you can just read through them. This particular passage actually is almost verbatim found in the book of Micah, probably because Micah was a younger contemporary of Isaiah and just used Isaiah's text as a source of his own. There are several ways that we can take this idea of the latter days. It's always, the latter days is always an imminent time for the people of God. Another way of translating it would simply be in the days to come. So this is always something that is imminent, just like tomorrow is imminent for all of us. Tomorrow is always right next door. It's always something that we have to be considering. It isn't as if these days of these latter days for Israel are necessarily far off, particularly following 
after this idea of the fulfillment that what we read in Genesis chapter 22. They weren't given those words so that someday, a few thousand years in the future, that they would one day be fulfilled. And so we have to make sure we understand that. They were given them so that they could fulfill them then. This was a promise that they could look forward to, the people of Israel. The promise, of course, with Israel is that they just couldn't live up to this the hype. There's no way that they were going to obey, that they were going to become this blessing to the nation. Just like Brian Taylor, the baseball player, there was a lot of hope and investment. But Israel just kept on doing the wrong thing. They kept on following after other gods. They kept on disobeying the one true God. Every time that you thought they were about to start doing the right thing, they would do something completely ridiculous and follow the wrong way. So, though Israel could have been a boon to all the nations around them, they just fell flat instead. Of course, this does look forward to a messianic fulfillment here in Isaiah chapter 2. Yes, in the latter days, when Christ comes, that day, this is for sure going to be fulfilled. The idea of the mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain is is a common thing that was used in religion in those days, not just uh, the Christian religion, but all the religions of the day. The highest mountain. The mountains were a place where worship took place. The pagans worshipped their gods on the mountains as well. This was always a place where you could go to be closest to your God. And so... There was always a debate where whose mountain was highest and who was closest to their God. And so you remember maybe even in John chapter 4 where we have the, the woman at the well and Jesus is having this conversation with her. And what is her question that she poses to the Lord? Which mountain should we worship on? Should we worship on the one that you guys worship on, the Jews, or should we worship on the one that we worship on, the Samaritans? It was an important concept in their day. It was a very prevalent Idea, And so how does God cut to the chase in this particular discussion? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. There is no debate. I am the one true God. There is no other gods before me. He's saying that again in no uncertain terms. And so as we consider this, the coming of Jesus Christ really puts a stamp on this whole idea because he answered this question. All the shadows that are seen in the Old Testament. Well, this God who is on the highest mountain, whose mountain will be established above all the hills, he actually comes and he has made flesh. He comes down and he dwells among men. They didn't have to go up to the mountain to see him any longer. He came down to the valley, as it were, to see them. And when he comes, he brings blessing. Think of what our Lord did when he came. He brought blessing. Israel should have been bringing that blessing as well. They should have obeyed. They should have been a light to the nations instead of a laughing stock to the nations. When it came to Jerusalem, it should have been like we see in verses 2 And three in Isaiah chapter two, all the nations shall flow to it. This mountain that's high and lifted up, all the nations would come to it. Verse three, and many people shall come and say, come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. It's pretty incredible. They should have been looking for that blessing. They should have looked upon the blessing of the people of God and they should have said, let us go and receive that kind of blessing. That is what we want for ourselves. We want the blessing of God and we see the blessing of God in the people of God. But they weren't seeing it at all. But it happened in Christ. Think about the book of Acts that we just got through finished finish studying. Think about the people of God and in that book. What did they do to the nations that they went out to? How did they show the blessing? They preached Christ to the nations. How did the Gentiles respond to the gospel? They called upon the name of the Lord over and over throughout that book. Just think of Peter's first sermon. Thousands came to the Lord. They all heard the gospel that day and they came to the Lord. They came to this blessing that they had been missing out on. They came because they saw the goodness of God through the work of His people. The nations were being blessed through the work of the people of God. And they still are. It's still happening today. So that should cause a very difficult tension within us. We should, want, we should feel this question. Would people say, when they looked at us, and when they looked at our lives, will people say, come let us go? to the mountain of the Lord, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. Is that what people are going to say when they look at us? And that brings us to this idea of the reality of the present difficulty. What is this difficulty? It's hard for us to walk in the paths that He has for us. In Christ, knowing the truth, knowing the difference, knowing between right and wrong. It's hard for us to say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. We struggle with that. Ultimately, we have one who said, who did that for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have said that. We have said, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord once and for all because the Spirit of God caused us to be changed, caused us to go from dark to light, to see God as our beloved Creator, rather than one that we hated. But now, we can say in Isaiah chapter 3, or Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3, we can say just like this, the prophet says, For out of Zion shall go the law for the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Because we love Him, we love His word. We love His laws. We want to follow them. But we also want to break them. We want to make our own laws. Stand in their place. In so many ways. For myself, even, I feel much like that baseball player that I talked about. I know the Christian that I could be. I know the things that I could be doing. I know the way that I want to act and who I want to talk to about Jesus. I know that I could be much better, but I continue to make bad decisions. Like Brian Taylor getting in a fight using his million dollar arm as his primary weapon doesn't make any sense. We do that in Christ. So what hope do we have? Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall make or shall decide disputes between the people. Who's going to do those things? Whose job is it to 
make sure that the people of this earth see the blessing, receive the blessing. Who is it that does those things? Who is it that causes the world to turn to God and worship Him? Who causes peace? Not me. Not you. Were it left up to us, we'd do the exact opposite. We would do what Israel did over and over in the Old Testament. We have a hard time keeping ourselves straight, much less other folks. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes. Because we know that He, Jesus Christ, brings peace. In just a few chapters, Isaiah is going to call Him the Prince of Peace. Beat short swords and spears, these instruments of war, into plowshares, into pruning hooks, instruments of farming, instruments of peace. These ideas had a very have a very near fulfillment for us, as we've seen the lives of people that we know come to Jesus, and we've seen them change. How have they changed? Well, for them, life starts to come into perspective. It's not that their lives get easier, necessarily, but there's a real peace that takes over. What did Jesus say? Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Christ, you learn that the sword and the spear are no longer necessary because the battle is won. He calls us to be at peace, and that's exactly what we do. And for you, if you're not experiencing that peace, it's because you have your sword out and you're trying to fight. Put it away. He alone can give you peace. And to be clear, these verses also have a far-off fulfillment. And so we're not saying that it's all happening right now. They await the coming of the Prince of Peace, who will come and he will end all strife once and for all. The nations that are at war, there's turmoil all over. We just look at the news, you can see that creation itself is in upheaval. Yesterday was a great example of that awaiting the return of the king, the one who is going to finally say, peace be still, and it's going to happen. When Jesus come, all of that will be put to bed. All people, believers and unbelievers, will lay down their arms and they will confess him as king. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, as we see a picture of that here. Revelation chapter 7. I often turn to this passage when I feel like the world is getting out of control and that it doesn't make sense and there's no peace and there's no hope for it. Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, 
They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall be hungry no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice, they had come out of tribulation. They had come out of difficulty, much like we all experience in this world in some form or another. There's death, there's destruction, there's sin, there's viciousness. There's just the toil of everyday life that wears on us. They had come out of tribulation, but now what were they entering into? Peace. And notice how this peace is characterized. We have a very similar picture there in Isaiah chapter 2. They're wearing white robes. And notice what those white robes are cleansed with. The blood of the Lamb. We don't typically think of blood as being a cleansing agent. But the blood of the Lamb is indeed just that. Cleaning them, making them white as snow, signifying that their sins are gone forever, giving them peace with God. But look at their continued peace even as they are there. They will be sheltered in His presence by the throne of God. No hunger, no thirst, no elements to destroy them. The shepherd there guiding them, taking away every tear. Of course, this is what awaits every believer, and we look forward to that. But what about the unbeliever? They will also confess one day. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Starting at verse 9. It says this, Therefore... God has highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will bow. Believers do this as his servants. We do so willingly, at least most of the time. Unbelievers will do this as his enemies. They will bow. Peace will be had. So, how should we respond? Well, Paul finishes here, just the same as Isaiah does back in chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13 there in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, because of this, because every knee will bow, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Just as you have obeyed, continue to do so. Work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation. That's not what it's saying here. Work it out. Show it to be a thing. Verse 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why should we do as we're told? Why should we obey? Because we are lights in the darkness. We are the salt and the light of the earth. How will the world ever come to the mountain of God saying, Come, let us God, or come, let us go to the mountain unless we are walking in Him? Look with me back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us work out our salvation. Let us live as we ought to live. The nations will see the good works that we do, and they will glorify the name of Jesus Christ because we do all that we do for his glory. One of the commentators that I read said this about this, and it really rung true for me. Isaiah makes a challenge to his contemporaries, and he makes this to us as well as readers of this today. If the world is ever to say, come, let us go up, like we see there in verse 3, the Lord's people must heed the call, come, let us walk. The first requirement is to have a church that is worth joining. And so for us, in conclusion, leaves us with a very interesting question. Do we want to be thought of as a church who folks will think of it as a what might have been? Nice new building, great families, lots of Bible teaching and worship. They had so much potential. Or will we take the blessings that we have been given? And this church has been blessed, brothers and sisters, we are a greatly blessed church, for we take those blessings and use them to see the name of Jesus Christ glorified. Let us be a people who will say, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we, with our hearts, say, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But we also admit our desperate need for help in this we believe lord help us in our unbelief we want desperately to walk in your light but we still are so tempted by the darkness and so lord we pray more and more that you would grow us to be people who walk in your light not for our own benefit because we have all the benefit we could ever get in christ but for the benefit of this world, that the people of Murray, Kentucky, the people that we know that do not worship you, would one day say, come, let us go up to the mountain of God. Lord, we pray that that day would come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.